Welcome to episode 89 of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. Focusing on early childhood development is vital for children and for our society. Research has demonstrated facilitating low-stress, high-engagement environments at the earliest ages builds strong, confident learners who, as adults, make up the backbone of a successful society. America's failure to make early childhood development one of our highest priorities is the reason our nation has shown a steady decline in numerous important areas relative to other countries. Today's guest, Dr. Rick Allen, has written Great by Eight, a bold call to action that demands intense emphasis on the development of young children, in particular from birth to age three and continuing through age eight. By investing in early childhood development now and over the long term, we can become a far stronger and more unified nation. Great by Eight provides experienced insights on how we can get there. Drawing on nearly 30 years in public administration, extensive work in early childhood program design, and an abundance of emerging research, Dr. Allen sheds light on the remarkable power of early childhood development. He illustrates how parents, caregivers, teachers, community activists, corporate executives, community-based nonprofit leaders, and forward-thinking policymakers can work together to cut social costs, create a stronger workforce, boost local economic development efforts, and improve our faltering international competitiveness. He clearly demonstrates that most children, given the right environment and support very early in life, can evolve into successful and happy adults. In 2001, the University of Washington Tacoma School of Business in association with the Business Examiner News Group, named Dr. Allen as a Business Leader of the Year in Pierce County, Washington. The Washington Association for the Education of Young Children recognized him as one of the state's outstanding community-based advocates for children. He was president and CEO of United Way of Pierce County, Washington, a community approaching 1 million people for more than 20 years. Dr. Allen holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from Eastern Washington University, a master's degree in interpersonal communications from Ohio University, and both a master's and a doctorate in public administration from the University of Southern California. Please join me in extending a hearty welcome to Dr. Rick Allen to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. Rick, I love your book. We have the same philosophy about children and the experiences of young children. Your academic and professional credentials are perfect for writing this book. But what I didn't mention about you is that you also have life experiences that the average person can relate to. You've baled hay on farms. You've worked as a dishwasher, a janitor in large restaurants. You've laid railroad track. You've worked construction jobs. You served in the U.S. Armed Forces during the Vietnam era. But what led to your focus on the importance of early childhood years? I became aware of this stuff really, really early as a kid when my, my father, who was a great guy until I was about eight, and then he had a very severe mental illness and became dangerous and was hospitalized and, and couldn't get fixed. 
And my mom actually had to divorce him because he was uh, uh, dangerous. We were in Southern California at the time. And my mom moved back up to Washington State with us. And uh, that's where her parents were. She was a single mom with four kids and remarried. And the guy she remarried turned out to be an abusive alcoholic. He spent a lot of time really trying to convince me and my brothers that we were and sister that we were worthless. But I was about eight or nine years old, had already been told by my own family that I was destined for greatness. And my grandparents were very positive and my uncles and aunts were very positive. So as a kid, as about 10, I found myself already defined in my head and had to protect my brothers and sister from being told differently. That experience, as I later became involved in student development, when I worked in colleges and universities, even in college, as the story in my book, when I went to see my mom teaching Spanish to her second grade class, all those things kind of came together and intrigued me about why do some people make it and other people not make it? And I started doing the research and then I got involved in uh, working with nonprofits all over Washington State and a lot of them working with distressed families. And right at that time, Washington was, State was developing its own early childhood program. So I got involved in that research and then was asked to start really trying to implement programs in Pierce County, Washington, when I moved to a community action agency. And that's when it all took off. And the research just confirmed kind of some of the instincts that you were talking about and that my mom knew instinctively and my own wife knew instinctively. And the research is very supportive. You have to have a positive formative environment, low in stress, high in positive engagement. And you have to begin that work with kids really early and give them all kinds of great experiences and in, including play, which I know that you're really high on. I noticed that a lot of the people that you've talked to have been uh, early childhood development people. And so all that stuff just came together and, and then I took off with it and worked in it for 30 years. And that's where the book came from. And you're right. One of the goals of my podcast is bringing forth experts on a variety of topics that families really need to understand. And one of them is the importance of play, the importance of early childhood. Like I used to sing to my babies before they were born. Yeah. I used to rub my stomach a lot. I think it's called effleurage, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm massaging them mm -hmm. and talking to them. And I never talked to my children, quote, baby talk. It was as if you and I were talking. And one of my sons is a doctor. And when he was in medical school, he would read to the babies and he would have the baby in his lap and he would read these medical journals out loud. So he was learning, but these babies were listening to this medical jur journal jargon as well. And I just, I thought that was just so cool. And it made me proud that they followed that same kind of thing, that reading is important, that 
play is important. And when I hear that, oh, the boys and I went to the playground today, I just makes my heart swell. I'm so proud of them. Yeah. And so happy for my grandsons. It's so important. And, you know, reading is so much more than reading. It's about the baby sitting in his lap or being close to him. It's about turning the pages. I, I wrote about this in the book. It's about, you know, seeing the words and, and, and what, feeling the warmth and feeling like reading and learning are fun things. And there, there's so much more than just whatever the words are on the page. I mean, that little baby was not going to learn all those doctor things. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> right. But, but there were lots of other things that the baby was learning anyway. You mentioned what you were doing with your kids as a mom. And in my, right in the introduction to my book, I wrote this. And finally, to my own mom, who from my earliest memories talked to me and mentored me as if I were a fully capable adult, even as she faced so many hardships, every ounce of her love and affection remains with me today. It's, it's. That gave me goosebumps. As I was reading it and then hearing you read it, I've got goosebumps. That, that is so, so profound and so important. And what a gift she gave to you. Yep, I agree. She's a great mom. You're going to make me cry. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and at what point in the book you talk about how early childhood development, and, and for some reason I have a hard time saying that word, but but it's not, you said it's not rocket science, it's brain science. And it brings me back to the point that I make a lot is that we were a great nation after World War II. Our country really pulled together. We didn't have this, you know, Republican versus Democratic mindset. I have to win, you have to lose. We really worked together. And we did have a, a strong education system, which I credit teachers. Teachers were respected. Teachers had the, the power to teach what they knew. They taught their subjects. And then we have Sputnik. And to me, that's the key to changing everything because this Cold War took, took place and we had to get to the moon. And I, I admire President Kennedy for saying we're going to invest in education because we want to be a leader in, in science and the space race. But I also attribute that moment to the decline, to the beginning of the decline of our education system in that while we were supposed to improve in science and math and those related subjects, teachers became less and less in control of their classrooms and big business took over. And I think it's failed the education system. I, you know... I, my mom, there's a story in my book about my mom teaching Spanish to second graders, and she could never do that today because teachers are so limited in what they're kind of allowed to do and how they have to teach to tests and all this other kind of stuff. I, and they're miracle workers, some teachers. I mean, 50 to 60% of students coming into school as kindergartners and first graders are not ready for school. Many of them haven't picked up a pencil. They haven't done any reading with their families or parents. They, they have, uh, or their grandparents. They, they're just not, they're not ready. 
And so the teachers are spending 50% of their time trying to bring kids who aren't ready up to speed and the 50% who are ready have to wait for that to happen. And, and it kind of gums up the whole works. I, and somehow they're able to get so many kids through that despite having an uphill battle every single day with packed classrooms and hardly any money being spent on books and relatively speaking and things like that. It's, I, I think teachers are miracle workers. We just got to give them room to maneuver. Absolutely. And the other thing too, is that when along with the standards of learning, which I fully uh, appreciate in that it has really helped children with learning disabilities, because before they were relegated to a room and not much attention paid for them, it's really acknowledged that with the right kind of coaching and teaching and, and the availability of good teaching materials, these children's brains can learn and do and perform. It's a matter of unlocking that potential that's inside them. But my my disagreement with the standards of learning is that we are pushing things on our children too soon. And I know that might sound contradictory to my earlier statement about the importance of early childhood development, but it's the mechanism. Like forcing a four or five-year-old to hold a pencil and write is just not developmentally appropriate when you look at the structure of that child's hands. And I don't think that the people who are making these policies really give a hoot about the emotional and physical research that's gone into what these children are capable of doing and what their limitations are. You know, we need to jump backwards because if kids have been in positive developmental environments before they reach kindergarten and first grade, those things are so much easier to move forward in every way. And because that doesn't happen in so many families, they're in high stress environments that, you know, high stress environments create hormones in the brain that keeps the brain from connecting neurons to synapses to, to help the brain develop. And if they're in constant stress, they come to school as four and five and six years old, and they're just not ready. And so what, what we have to figure out is how do we work with those families in a way that doesn't seem like a big government takeover and more just big bureaucracy and work with the families and have the families as the first, best, and most important teachers to those kids so that when they get to school, they're ready to roll. I use ready for more by four, thrive by five, and great by eight in the book. And, you know, eight is about what, third grade reading, eight, uh, eight nine, 10, uh, get, to get to third grade reading. And the research says that if you can get kids to third grade reading proficiency on time, the likelihood long-term is that they're gonna be just fine. So those early years are so important with the parents, just vitally important. And we've gotta figure out a way to, to help more families be more stable and uh, allow those kids to thrive at home and then, and then thrive at school. And a lot of the book is about how we can do that. How do we, 
how do we work community by community to make that happen? And who are the nonprofits in the community who already work with parents in positive ways that we can leverage into something even bigger and better and, and not have a big government takeover. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, everybody's got to help to fund it. These, can, these things can be run community by community. I've had that experience and it's been a positive experience and it worked and, it, and it's possible to make it work everywhere. Uh, there's a chapter in the book called uh, Going Big by Going Small. But by that, I mean, we can make this a national effort, but we just do it by using small nonprofits all over the United States who are in these communities they're already doing a lot of the work with families who are in stress. We need to pay attention to young families. We need to help families. And if as a society, we invest in families, we're not going to have the drug addiction problem. We're not going to have the gun violence problem. We're not going to have a need for so many jails and for-profit penitentiaries. And, and all the research, it says exactly that if you do it the right way. And, and, yes. and you're, uh, you're preaching to the choir here because I have been standing on pedestals and going to the legislature and I've been doing everything I can to try to have people just look at the data and be astounded at how much we're falling behind and realize that if we don't turn this around as a country, we're not going to be a world power for very long, very long, meaning over the next 25 or 50 years. We're going to be falling behind. We're 25th and 26th and 27th and 28th in a lot of things now. We're not number one. We're falling behind already and people are blind to it. They don't want to hear it. I agree. And all the data says that too. Statistics on page 28 about the world relative to early childhood development and early learning. The U.S. is 26th in preschool participation for four-year-olds. We're 24th for three-year-olds. We're 22nd in the typical age that children begin early childhood education. We're 15th in the teacher-to-child ratio in early childhood education. And we're 21st in total investment in early childhood education relative to the country's wealth. Those are horrible numbers. Now listen to this. This is from another page. This is on page 15. The late 1940s and 50s ranking, we were pretty close to number one, or clearly number one in all these things I'm about to discuss, and I'm gonna give you our current ranking. Overall education, we're now anywhere from 14th to 17th. High school graduation rate, we're now 11th to 18th somewhere. College graduation rate, we're now 15th. Technical skills, we're now 34th. Overall happiness, we're now 17th. Freedom from corruption, we're now 24th. Freedom of the press, now 46th. Development of critical infrastructure, we're now 12th. Leader in environmental advances, which you would think we'd be number one, we're number eight. Overall healthcare efficiency, number 44. Overall quality of life, number 17. National satisfaction, 19. Raising healthy and successful children, you'd think we'd be number one, the richest country in the world. Number nine. Global connectedness, number 89. Least child poverty. We're number 34 out of 35 measured countries. It's ridiculous. But as you kind of stated earlier, we are number one in citizens in prison. We're number two in the highest percentage of children living in poverty behind only Romania. We're number one in multimillionaires and billionaires. 
Number two, an ignorance of national social issues behind only Italy. Number two, in carbon dioxide emissions behind only China, which has four times our population. Number one, in oil consumption. Number one, in death by violence. Number one, in small arm exports. Number one, in small arm imports. Number one, in guns per capita. Number one, in plastic surgeons. Number one, in breast augmentations. Number one, in wine consumption. Number one, in luxury cars purchased. Number one, in overall sporting event attendance. And number one, in movie attendance. We clearly are a society that has our priorities upside down. I know you've talked about the key to us becoming great again is investing in early childhood development. The key to that is to really look at the nonprofit sector. So tell us, how do we get started? How do we turn this around? First, we have to realize how important it is that children grow up in stable and formative environments. I call that safe, stable and formative environments. They have to be in those kind of environments so that their brains have synapse activation that connects to neurons because connecting to those neurons is how the brain sends signals and makes decisions and learns quickly and, you know, learns how to do the right things over and over and over and over again. And so that's called synapse activated neuron engagement, safe and sane. Kids need to be in safe and sane environments. So that's number one. We have to realize that unless that happens, they're not going to develop the way they should be developing. And we have a lot of families in the United States where that is not happening. So that's number one. We also have to realize that we have to get to children really early because those neurons that aren't engaged by the age of 10 begin to atrophy. They begin to disappear. So it limits our ability to move those kids forward after the age of 10 because their brains have kind of shifted gears and has started, they've started to get rid of all the things that haven't been used. So unless we use those neurons and those synapses connect to them from age one to 10, zero to 10, they're going to be in trouble after 10. They're going to learn a lot slower. So that means that we have to get kids in the right environments and we have to do it really early, zero to 10 and preferably in the first three years when kids learn about 80% of everything they learn from zero to three. Think about a baby just born and a child that's three years old who now is speaking, walking, recognizing, playing, uh, feeling tension, feeling happiness. They have learned so much in those three years. So that's when their brains are most powerful. A little baby has about 100 million neurons, which is more than adults. And how many of those we can activate between zero and three is critical to developmental life. So that's kind of the basic fundamentals just wrapped up really quickly. So how do we get to those families that are in stressful 
environments with not very much engagement because there's either just a single parent, a single parent working two jobs to try to make things work, or in an unhappy family with all kinds of economic problems. Poverty is the highest stress stressor. Economic poverty is the highest stressor in families all over the United States. So how do we get to those families? And the answer that we came up with in, in my community is we already have a whole bunch of nonprofits who nonprofits are small. They're not there to make a profit. They're there to provide a service. They're not paying their staff hundreds of thousands of dollars. They are service providers to families who are stressed out. And things like food banks, um, homeless shelters, churches, community action agencies, United Ways, uh, Central Latinos, the, uh, Urban Leagues, um, English as a Second Language uh, organizations. Every community of any size has these nonprofits who are already working with families, with children who are in high risk situations. They're already there on almost every community, either regionally or locally. What I try to point out in my book is we have to take advantage of our strengths. And that's one of our national strengths is those small nonprofits who are doing yeoman's work, most of them on shoestring budgets, and, and they too are miracle workers. I call them mighty mouse, you know, the mighty mouse is on the way. They, they, they perform <laughs> miracles. And so if those nonprofits could come together and talk about, instead of just working, well, no nonprofit works independently. They all work with other nonprofits, but it's a loosely organized group typically. And the question we ask in my community was, now that we see this research on early childhood development and how important it is, how can we take the jobs that we're each doing and become more child-focused in how we prioritize our services? So because we don't have enough money to serve everybody, can we decide that the first families we have to serve are those families with very young children so that we can reach those children now so it doesn't turn into a problem later. And if you have all of the nonprofits in your community talking to each other about, can we become children focused first and work in a more um, organized and focused fashion together around that idea, can we become more powerful? Can we, if we stay on that long term, can we kind of turn this around? And the answer is, yes, you can. We did it in our community. And, and, and our graduation rates, for instance, from high school, went from 69% to 85% over a 10-year period. The good news is that's not even when most of the positive things happened. We used to focus on early childhood development and say, well, it'll make kids have higher grades and they'll get higher grades and graduate from high school with higher grades. Well, that turned out not to be true. They more graduate, but their grades weren't higher. 
And what we found out is because of the way the brain develops over time, the last part of the brain develops when you're about 20 to 21, 22 years old. And all the research is now saying that all those kids who went through early childhood development, like early Head Start or Head Start or Montessori schools or whatever, begin to show their greatest gains after the age of 22. And their whole person performance just begins to zoom away from all those kids who didn't get that kind of help. The statistics on valedictorians who make a huge impact on the world pales in comparison to the students who graduated with B's and C's. Because it's just like what you've said, is after they get out on their own and their brain begins that final maturation stage is yep. when they blossom. Yep, exactly. And that's the big finding. That's the most recent finding in the research. Everybody thought we would see it at high school graduation. And we saw many people graduate, but the, it's like, well, well, their grades weren't that much better. This must not be working. Wrong. It's working. You just don't see the benefit of it until the brain completes its complete uh, maturation process. And that's at about the age of 21, 22. And then the, the people who went through those early childhood development kind of uh, um, processes in whatever way begin to blossom big time. And they, they're, they're contributors to society at a greater rate. They don't, they don't have drug problems. They don't have alcohol problems. They don't have incarceration problems. They don't have any of the issues that you were talking about earlier. They, they go on to make great contributions. And the thing is, <laughs> we are an instant gratification society. So if we don't see things happen in a year or two years or three years, we go somewhere else. And you can't do that in early childhood. You got to hang in there and you got to hang in there long-term, full-time, get kids, you know, through those first eight to 10 years. And in our community, we, formed organizations that worked with them all the way through high school graduation and miracles start to happen, you know, 10 years later. And the thing is we fund things. Most funders only fund things for one year, two years, or three years. Well, you can't do that in early childhood. We're looking at a 10, 12, 15 year before the contributions become so obvious. And that's part of the issue. We've got to figure out how to fund these things on a permanent basis. And I have all kinds of stuff in the book about how do you go about asking for funds and how do you, how do you talk to your state legislatures and your county councils and your city, city governments about playing a role in this as funders and let the nonprofits do what they do and keep this thing going on a permanent basis. I mean, it's not, it's not easy. It isn't, but it's not rocket science. You just have to, you have to decide you're going to do it and then just hang in there and do it and measure it and prove it. And, and, the, and measure it. That's important too. But how do you measure it? And I think the other thing is, and that was something that you've stressed in the book, is this can't be political. This has to be, this is important to all of us. It doesn't matter what race we are, what our gender is 
what our politics is, it doesn't matter. It's important for all of us. And if we want to be a society that is sustainable, we have to invest in early childhood education. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's a chapter in the book that, that is chapter three. It starts on page 19. In chapter three, the title of it is Clinton and Trump agree. Can't we? And it goes on to talk about, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it goes on to talk about how both Hillary Clinton and Ivanka Trump both made a point to talk about how important early childhood is. And for all the right reasons. I mean, they're both right about it. And they're both very close to being in the same boat. I mean, that's a miracle all by itself. So if they can agree on this, you know, that's the spectrum is wide right there. And if they can see the importance of this, we've all got to see the same thing and, and move forward. And that's one of the advantages of this podcast is I can have guests on such as yourself and, and talk about the importance of play and early development and what we do with our kids and reading. And I don't think we can say it enough and we need to say it in a variety of ways so that that message sinks in. I just wish our elected officials would start paying attention to the research. I mean, to valid research, not pseudoscience research, but valid educational right. child development research. Part of the issue is they have so many people in their ear on so many things that I think it's difficult for them to distinguish about which is most important because what obviously to many of them becomes most important is who's going to pay for my next election and what issues do they want me to really focus on because that will get me reelected and then I'll go on to the next thing. And that doesn't work very well with early childhood development. I mean, you've got you've to lead on it and just say, this is what we have to be doing. And I'm not sure that leading on an issue like this is something most politicians would feel comfortable with, not because it's not the right thing to do, but just because it places them at risk of not getting reelected <laughs> because they're not focusing on the things that the people who are giving them money want them to focus on. It's a flaw in our system, unfortunately. Just so people know this, if they're interested in this book, it's great by eight, but and it's on Amazon, but you only get to it by for some reason. I don't know why. Unless you put great by eight and then you put Rick Allen after it. And then great by eight pops up on Amazon. But if you just put great by eight, it doesn't pop up. So if anybody wants to know more about the book and just look at what might be in it, they just have to keyboard in great by eight Rick Allen and, and it'll pop up on Amazon have a link to it in the show notes. So they just need to click on the link and it'll take oh, it directly there. That's great. Is there anything in particular that you thought was most compelling that we haven't touched on? I think the actual how-to of what parents can do, because I think parent involvement is vital. Where do we go with helping parents learn what's right? I'm on page 197 and just looking at the what what parents can do part of it. And I was telling the story there about how I used to read to my kids and always stop them and try to get the words right. If you make it fun, you don't, they don't have to learn the words right away and how to pronounce everything right the right first time and all that kind of stuff. When I started just kind of going through the story and teasing with them and having fun, they learned so much more. 
And so there are a couple of other things in that particular area. Uh, try to keep the stress low. That's the first thing parents can do. You know, the kids don't know anything about your mortgage payment or how much you owe on your credit card or any of that kind of stuff. And if you argue about that kind of stuff in front of them, all that does is create stress for them and they don't even know why. I, I wrote, your kids don't know you had a hard day at work. All they know is you are short with them and inattentive. Your kids didn't have anything to do with your mortgage payment or your credit card bill. All they know is that you are mad and things are tense and stressful in your house. Handle those things in private as much as you can. And when your kids are around, be an intentional and positively engaged parent. And as a second point, find new ways to have fun together. Brain science also tells us that high engagement activities help children's brains grow new synapses and connect neurons in new ways through new experiences. Repeating these activities helps hardwire in those brain pathways. You and other caregivers should be doing what you can to give them varied experiences with some repetition in fun, low stress ways. And finally, I write, be a good mentor regarding social and emotional skills. We know from research that social and emotional development at an early age has a high correlation to later success in school and then in life, even after 25 years. That means things like learning to play well with others, share, collaborate, understand boundaries, and communicate well, listen and understand, as well as talk and write, are very important to later success. This is why the phrase play to learn has so much relevance. The parent has to be the child's first, best, and more important, most important teacher. That has to happen. I stress that it also doesn't have to cost a lot of money. No, not at all. Playing in the dirt, making mud pies helps develop those muscles in the hands that prepare the child later for writing, playing with Play-Doh that you either buy or you can make, mud pies, going out into the yard and looking for colors of autumn leaves, looking for shapes, and then Absolutely. coming back and looking up what are they, you know, learning about the birds and listening to the sounds. Yeah, Those are all yeah. things that are stimulating those children's minds. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. They don't have to cost a dime. I mean, you just go to the park and walk around and talk and, and look at the grass. I mean, and walk through a, a forest and look at all the things in the forest. I mean, none of those things cost money and it's low stress, high positive engagement, fun activities, that's the most you can do as a parent. I mean, if you just focus on those things, you're going to make progress with your kid developing the right way. And, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding in your house. I mean, I've seen those pictures with you and all those happy kids and all those smiles. And I look at my kids and my grandchildren and see how happy they are and how they love to learn. It's so rewarding to see that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because we're, we're a family that is, relatively speaking, very financially secure and all that. And not everybody lives in those kind of environments. I understand that. But it doesn't cost money to be a good parent. It's easy to be a parent. It's also easy to be a good parent. And that means that you do the things that helps your kids have fun and develop in a low stress, high positive engagement environment. And if you do that, you're going to be successful with your kids on the whole. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. 
If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.